0: for nearly five years and more recently is the director of an emergency room in a hospital uh, down outside of Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, they make their home there. Their real home is in St. Simon, Georgia. Some of you know that. And uh, we're so glad to uh, welcome Dr. Greg Blatt. So Greg, come and open the word of God. Looking forward to it. Let's welcome him. <laughs> shall we do that? Can you hear me? Is that okay? Okay, great. Go ahead and start with a word of prayer here real quick. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do for us, and we thank you for this group of people. Lord, you you sovereignly bring people together. It's no mistake that we're connected here together, that this church has been planted. We thank you for Dad Z and Mom Z and there are other people who help with this church to get it off the ground. And we ask this morning that you give me clarity and you give me focus and that your word will go out and touch all of our hearts. And we thank you for this Christmas season, Lord, where we celebrate the birth of your son. Thanks so much for all that you do for us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, thanks for having me. This is a little bit unusual. Usually I do medical talks. And I was telling uh, Dad Z, that's Pastor Zabolsky to you guys, but uh, I get to call him Dad Z. Uh, and I was telling him, you know, that the two talks I've been working on this week, are this sermon in Job and uh, large uh, carnivorous reptile attacks and alligator attacks. So um, if this gets a little dry, I've got a lot of interesting facts about large reptilians that we can go through. Anyone know the longest snake in the world? Anyone want to guess? There's a difference between the longest and the largest, what, other than my five-year-old who, uh, who loves this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's close. Um, the, the largest snake in the world is the anaconda but it's not the longest the reticulated python is actually the longest Um but there's uh... you know i've been learning all sorts of things uh... twenty people have died of alligator attacks in florida in the last you know few years actually ten of them since two thousand the last of whom was running from the police and jumped off a bridge into the river and eyewitnesses said they could hear him, you know, yelling and screaming as the alligator took him under. So I think that's divine intervention, um, <laughs> but maybe my theology is off because I've only had one one credit class in seminary. So I, you know, we'll we'll see. But um, if you if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Job, Job one. Um, there is a way to tie Job into Christmas, uh, I I think, um, and we're going to be going through this together. Uh, but um, just by way of introduction, uh, for those of you who don't know me real well, I am a physician, I'm an emergency physician, I don't do a lot of preaching, actually I've done no preaching, um, so this is very unusual, but, uh, but, it, but it, you know there has been a series of events that have brought me to this place and where I'm taking seminary classes and where I'm standing up at this podium this morning, I wanted to tell you just a little bit about that before we got, jumped into the word here. Um, a couple of things have happened over the last five, six, seven years that have really influenced me and, and really affirmed to me how important it is for each of us to know the word. You know, we, I grew up in the church. Um, my dad was a deacon. My grandfather was a pastor. And I grew up with all the Bible stories like we all know. Uh, and, you know, those are great things. And, and I, you know, I, I grew up with this idea that the Bible was there to give me character lessons about You know, interesting stories uh, from people that, you know, were characters in the Bible teaching us about honesty and all that. But it's much more than that. It's much more than a collection of interesting character uh, vignettes. It's actually an amazing story of the Lord's intervention in the, um, the story of humanity and our lostness and our brokenness. And these character references that we have are interesting, but the point of this is not... Daniel and not Noah and not Jonah the point of this is the amazing intervention that the Lord sends to a broken world to save us and I a few years ago Sarah and I were uh, were at Hopkins Uh, we uh, met when I was in Baltimore and through a series of events I took a job with the University of Pittsburgh and uh, the job was in the country of Qatar Qatar uh, which is where dad Z goes once a year to to minister now um, but while I was over there, it was a really interesting experience. It was the first time in my life I had lived in a foreign country, and it was probably the first time in my life where I had been in a place where there, were, there was no one that we knew of who had been trained in uh, seminary-level training. There were no pastors there. The church that we attended had a few hundred people, but there was, it was not a sanctioned church. It was just sort of tolerated. And you would go to church in the morning, and there would be guys in machine guns, for two reasons: number one, uh, to take down our license plate numbers to watch us carefully because we weren't Muslim, and then the second thing was to keep the crazies away so they didn't blow the church up and then scatter all these Western professionals that were coming in that the the government needed to help build the country. But I remember being there and thinking, "What in the world? I mean, this is this is unbelievable. There's a million people in this country and not a single person who's trained to preach the word. And so what would happen would be." The the lay people in the church, uh, the men of the church would get together and they had an elder group that would take turns preaching when there wasn't a pastor, a trained pastor there. Towards the end of our time there, uh, they approached me and they said, would you like to give a talk or give a sermon? And I said, oh, that's fine. Um, And over the next couple of weeks, I spent some time really looking at the word. And I was really overwhelmed with my own inadequacy. I'd grown up in the church. I'd gone to Christian schools. I'd gone to a Christian uh, college, and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I would kind of scratch my head and I'd say, well, you know, maybe I can talk about this or talk about that. But I felt very inadequate to go deep into the Word and be able to feed not only myself, but able to, be talk, able to talk to the, the people in this congregation. And that was a really eye-opening experience. I've done a lot of speaking and teaching to medical students and medical residents and physicians, but this idea of going into the Word and learning uh, you know, have, being able to go through and decipher what the scripture really says and then be able to present it was something that felt very foreign to me. And I was shocked by it. So we, we came back home, and the second event that happened that was really interesting was uh, we had our children, and our children started to get a little bit bigger, and, and my oldest daughter, Taylor, started asking me questions. And I, I was tucking her in about six months ago, and she asked a very good question. She said, you know, Dad, uh, I've been thinking about this. And, uh, you know, if God is all-powerful, if he can do anything, and, he's, he's a, and he loves us, why does he allow bad guys break, to break into the house and steal people's stuff? And I thought, my goodness, the classic skeptic argument about how can an omnipotent, all-loving God still allow evil in the world, you know, transferred, you know, spoken by my little five-year-old. And so that was a real eye-opening experience for me, too, because I thought to myself, if my daughter's asking me questions like this when she's five... What questions is she going to have when I'm fi- when she's 15? And do I have real answers and not pat answers to give her? And if I don't, and if I don't live this, then she's going to shrug her shoulders and say, well, there either isn't an answer or it's an, ad- an adequate answer, and she's going to look elsewhere. So those two events combined, having children, asking honest questions, and then being in an environment where I felt so overwhelmed and so inadequate to present the word really got me thinking. And it was you know, through those events that we started looking into the possibility of going to seminary. And so I'm enrolled part-time at Reform Seminary in, in Atlanta. And Sarah and I took this, uh, this class together. And it's been just a tremendous blessing. But that's what I'm doing up here. So if you guys are wondering why is the doctor at the podium, it's not because uh, Dad Z needed to do some extra Christmas shopping. Um, it's actually because uh, I consider this a tremendous blessing and a tremendous honor, and I, re- I really mean that. Uh, you know, Having the opportunity to, to spend time with God's people and get into the Word and uh, have the Word work on our, on our hearts and on our minds, I think is a tremendous blessing. So thank you. That's the introduction, and let, let's go to Job. So, okay, everyone, I'm guessing that the majority of us, if not all of us, know the story of Job. Uh, When I was, my wife and I were talking about this, uh, when we went to this Job class, we knew that people were going to ask, how did you end up here? And I was going to joke around and say to the people at the seminary, well, we saw online that you guys were having a job class, and with the economy (laughs) being what it is, we thought any, you know, any, uh, any help that we can get is great. And so here we are, let's talk about jobs. But it's not job, it's Job. And uh, Job was an amazing guy, really, when you look at him. I I would love to know, have known Job. And, uh, you know, there could be people in your life where you, you think when you were a little kid or when you were younger, you look at someone who's just larger than life. And Job was one of those guys. If you look at Job 1, let's just start there. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. So we learn from this narrative in Job who Job was. This is a guy who is reputable. He is someone who is, uh, if, if you read on the narrative, he's obviously very wealthy. He's a prominent man. He's someone that the people in the community look to for leadership and counsel. And he was sort of, you know, a town father or a town leader, you know, you can, maybe like a mayor sort or a, someone who would be on the boards of the major organizations there, if they had those back then. But um, so Job was a prominent man, and obviously, uh, you know the story. What happens here, unbeknownst to Job, there's this discussion going on in heaven, and Satan approaches God, and he says, uh, and God says, Hey, look at my servant Job. Look at this guy. He's blameless. He's a leader. He loves his family. He's an amazing person. And Satan says, Yeah, right. He loves the stuff you give him and not you, and I can prove it. Let me touch him. And so God says, well, you can take his stuff away, and then the trials start coming, and then he says you can touch his body, and he allows that, and, and Satan does that. And so if you turn to Job 2, you, you have here this man who was this prominent leader, this incredible guy, is reduced to really nothing, at least in the world standards. He loses his family, all his children. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses his influence, at least from a secular standpoint, um, and in the end, in verse 9 there of chapter 2, his wife says, how can you still trust in God? Look at what's happened, I, and, i.e., you've done all the right things, and look at, look at what's happened to you. Uh, and you know, she says, you should just curse God and then die. And Job you know, is standing there in nothing. And the passage, that, though, that I want to focus on this morning is the next. If you look at chapter 2, verse 11, and I think this is really interesting... When you look at uh, these verses in, in starting eleven, I'll just read this here. It says, "Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place: Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days." and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great now this to me is something that's really profound if you look at the book of Job and see how it's divided you have the narrative and then in Job 3 you have this lament the Job's lament where he says you know I was something and I'm nothing and then you have a dialogue and it's this dialogue with these three friends mainly until you get to the very end of the book and this dialogue goes back and forth between his friends And that makes up the majority of the book of Job. But what's interesting to me is this. If you look at this passage here in chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, you see a couple of things that I think are really interesting. If Job kept counsel with these men, these men are probably very prominent people who are spread out in other regions. They're probably men of means, men of influence, much like Job. And they stop what they're doing because this man that they respect and they love so much... Is going through this incredible trial, and they hear about this, so they stop what they're doing and they start coming from around the regions to come and comfort Job. Obviously, these men are very well-meaning, and they love Job and to to make this sacrifice. And they show up, and they see what Job has been has been through, and they're just they're overwhelmed. They 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 look at him and they say, "We cannot believe what's happened to you, Job." And they uh, you know spend time in silence in an attempt to comfort him, and then these dialogues start up where they try to offer him him counsel. But in the end of all this, in spite of their well-meaningness, and in spite of the fact that obviously as you read through the book of Job, these men believe in God. It's not that they're atheists. It's not that they are ignorant men. They're very wise. They they know a lot about the world. When you get to chapter 16, verse 2, Job says, Miserable comforters are you. Miserable comforters. So these men who are well-meaning, who are good men, who loved Job, who sacrificed for him, come from all over to come and help him, in the end hurt him. So the question is why? How could this happen? Are these guys just, did they have ulterior motives or whatever? I I don't think so. I think these men were very well intentioned and their their hope was to comfort Job. But they end up hurting him because of one reason. Their theology of God was wrong. Their perspective of God was wrong. And even though they were well-meaning and even though they were believers, Their image of who God was and their vision of who God was was inaccurate. And that caused all sorts of problems. Problems in Job's life and problems in their life because what they believed was retribution theology. And what's retribution theology? Retribution theology is this. If you do good, you get blessed. If you do bad, you get punished. So if if you've got bad circumstances, well, then that's obvious. You've done something wrong. And their counsel to Job was, You've got bad circumstances. Obviously, you've done something wrong. Let's find out what it is and let's confess it. And when Job says, I'm innocent, they take that as either arrogance or ignorance or both, and they turn on him. So their inad- inadequate theology, their inaccurate view of God, causes tremendous problems. And it just it hit home with me when I was looking at this. Because in my own life, I saw how my own inadequate view of the Lord caused problems in my own life with either pride or distance from the Lord or making life decisions that were based on inadequate theology and we could i mean that that list is almost endless about how we can twist and turn things in our head based on an inadequate view of God but I began to look at this more and more and I thought you know this is a great illustration for us today because if there's ever a time when we have a lot of mixed messages about who God is it's these days is it not you know it seems like everyone's on the street corner figuratively speaking saying this is who God is or this is, you know, the true path to spirituality. And it's hard to decipher really who's right and who's wrong. And it seems like most people have a little bit of right and a little bit of wrong and mixed all together. And how do you get to the bottom of this? So let's begin and look at this a little bit. So Job's friends are good guys. We've we've sort of uh, confirmed that here. And yet they cause a lot of bad problems. All right. I came across an interesting study and uh, when I was looking at this and I, I don't know if any, has anyone heard of Soul Searching, the book Soul Searching or the, the National Study of Youth and Religion? Anyone heard of this? This is really interesting. So, you know, talking about uh, people who have you know, an inaccurate view of God or whatever, uh, I recently was recommended, uh, someone recommended to me a, a book called Soul Searching and this is a very interesting study and I think it, it really ties in well here. You know, we think sometimes that if we're in the church and we believe in the basic core of the gospel, that God is here to, uh, to save us, and we say the tenets, you know, the major tenets of the faith, well, you know, I believe in God and I believe that, you know, in Jesus or whatever, that that's, that's really uh, everything. Uh, it, that is everything in the, in the sense that, that is the gospel message. But there are a lot of people who walk around and say those things that don't really understand who God is. And a very interesting study was done by the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, not a Christian institution, obviously, um, and it was a group of sociologists got together and they wanted to know what was the major American religion. And you've see, ever seen these polls in USA Today and they say 99.9% of people are evangelical Christian in America. And you think, really? I, I don't know hardly any of them. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, so I, yeah, I've always looked at these surveys and thought, hmm, that's really strange. So the University of North Carolina wanted to get to the bottom of this. And they conducted a survey. It was a, a really well done. I don't put a lot of faith in a lot of statistics and surveys when they're presented in the popular media. Because you, it can be skewed. You have to look at the methodology. But the methodology of this survey was really well done. And what they, what they did was they said, we're going to try to figure out what the, what the majority of people in America believe about God. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to poll teenagers. For two reasons. Number one, teenagers uh, are going to, their belief, their spiritual beliefs are what's coming. And then also they reflect their parents often. So if you get a window into the spiritual lives of teenagers, you can get a window into the spiritual life of that family. So they conducted this survey, and at the end of it, what they found was in spite of what USA Today and Newsweek and Time might tell you, the majority of religion is not evangelical Christianity or even atheism or even whatever it is, you know, the tag that you want to apply. And this is I find this absolutely fascinating. The majority of religion in America today is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. And so let me, that's a big series of words, so let me just sort of define this. What they did with this survey was this. They called these kids and they said... What are you? Are you a Baptist or a Presbyterian or an atheist or a Muslim or a Hindu? And the kids would say, I'm a whatever. And then they would file that. And then they would say, now tell me about God. What do you think about God? Is he a loving God? Is he not a loving God? How does someone get to heaven? Uh, What do you think about um, people who don't believe? Where do they go? What do you think the major point of your religion is? And they would take the beliefs of these these teenagers and they would classify them doctrinally. So if they, you know said, I believe in, you know, that everything is God. They'd say, okay, that's pantheism, you know. Or, I don't believe there is a God. Okay, well, that's atheism. So they'd classify it doctrinally. And what they found was that regardless of the tag that these kids have, so if they're Baptist or if they're Buddhist or if they're agnostic or whatever, that most teenagers, i.e. most Americans, believe in a, a different religion, a new religion, called moralistic therapeutic deism. And so by that, we mean moralism, moralistic. So what is moralism? If you do good, you go to heaven. If you do bad, you go to hell. Okay? Therapeutic, which means um, the point of my religion ultimately is my own personal happiness. It's to make me a better person, to make me better at whatever it is I'm doing. And the kids would articulate things like this. You know, that, well, I, I just believe in God because I know he helps me play football better or he helps me get better grades or whatever. So the point of the religion was to help them become better at whatever it was that they were trying to do. And lastly, deism, and what's a deist? A deist believes there's a God who created the world, but that God is not actively involved personally in your life. He's sort of distant, and he only gets involved periodically, and usually most deists believe only when you really want him to. So the things you want him to be off off and away from, he stays away from. But when you really need him and you're in a crunch, you pray, and he gets involved. And what they found was doctrinally, if they categorized what these kids believed, this was the majority religion in America today. And now here's the kicker, here's the real punchline of the whole thing, regardless of the tag that they labeled themselves with. So you had Baptist-flavored moralistic therapeutic deists, and Presbyterian-flavored moralistic therapeutic deists, and you know, sort of new-age moralistic therapeutic deists. So in the end, what these secular sociologists said was this, the Christian church in the West, particularly in America, has been worried for decades that secularism was going to erode the foundation of their doctrinal beliefs. And they said, you shouldn't worry about that if you're a Christian. What you should worry about is not that your kids are going to be swept away by secularism, but that moralistic therapeutic deism was going to cannibalize your children from within. And by that they mean this, that these individuals who believe this are often active in their churches. They don't even know they believe this, but they're so doctrinally skewed because their vision of God is not based on the Bible, it's not based on sound doctrine, it's based on a little bit of you know, scriptural teaching, a lot of traditionalism, a lot of popular self-help pop psychology stuff, and this blend that you mix it all together, the view of God that they get, is, can be defined doctrinally as moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, is that not amazing? And that explains these national surveys in USA Today and Time and Newsweek, where you see 50% or 80% or 60% of people are evangelical Christian. Well, they identify themselves as evangelical Christian, but their doctrinal beliefs are moralistic, therapeutic, deism, even though you know, they, they, they would never say that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the point of this whole thing is this, is that Job's friends had problems because of their inadequate theology. And that's the, the fact that we have issues in today's world based on an adequate theology and an accurate view of God, well, that's obviously something that's a very modern-day thing. All right, so why is this important? Is this important? (laughs) It's absolutely important. Okay, so why why would this be important today? Well, I believe that I agree with A.W. Tozer, and A.W. Tozer was a theologian and a pastor in generations past, and he said this. He said, not only is it important, What you believe when you think of God, what you see and what you believe when you think about God is the most important thing. And the reason it's the most important thing, you know, I used to think that, well, you believe in God, but there's a lot of other things that are important too, and you just kind of graft God on to whatever it is that else is important, you know, your marriage thing, your career stuff, all this, and God's kind of grafted on. But Tozer says it's the most important thing. And the longer I live and the more I look at Scripture, I absolutely agree with him because who you think God is colors everything about you it colors everything about you because and the reason for that is is that your view of God skews your life choices it skews your marriage it skews your how you raise your kids and the career things that you seek and we're going to look at that here uh, as we go on so yeah it's absolutely important absolutely important to have um, uh, this idea of having an accurate theology and I think you know if you're writing down points here um, if you have a pen or pencil, you can write this down. Point number one is, we all have a personal theology. I had a pastor, I was in it, the audience one day, and the pastor said, if you have a pen or pencil, write this down. If you don't have a pen or pencil, take some mascara and make a note. If you don't have that, bite off the end of your finger and write in blood. It's that important. <laughs> so I'm not going to go that far, uh, because I'm off the clock, and um, uh, I don't want to have to do any of the emergency uh, stuff with the finger lacerations. But I do think this is, this is important. So the first point is this, is that we all have a personal theology, all of us. And you might not consider yourself a theologian, but at your heart you are. You absolutely are. And you might say, well, that's, that's for the pastor, or that's for the, you know, the seminary folks, or that's for the people who are really spiritual. But in your core, at your essence, you are a theologian, and your theology is shaping everything whether you know it or not. It's shaping everything. So it's absolutely important you do have a personal theology, and your personal theology is influencing right now things like this. You know, obviously, you know, the, the ultimate question is how did man get here? You know, what is the point of life? Is man basically good or evil? Is there an afterlife? Uh, things like my daughter asked me, why does God allow suffering? But other questions, why can't I kick that bad habit? That bad habit that keeps coming up, that I've tried to defeat over and over again, your theology will give you an answer for that and you might say well it's because my parents didn't raise me right or it's because I'm just you know fill in the blank and we have a problem with anger or we have a problem with whatever or you know I you know it's it's because I whatever but your personal theology is answering these questions internally on on a on maybe a not overt conscious level but absolutely you all we all have a personal theology now of course our personal theology what should it be developed by what's the ultimate source for theology absolutely the word of god 100% but the fact of the matter is is that because of the world that we live in today it used to be 50 years ago 70 years ago that the the, the culture that we that our parents and grandparents walked through often affirmed a lot of the uh, i guess the the, the core theological positions you know there's right and wrong you respect authority a lot of the sociological um, outflow of, of a lot of the good doctrine that we had from from past generations uh, but that's not the case anymore and so oftentimes, instead of the Word of God informing our doctrinal theology, what's happening is, is that we get a little bit here from God's Word, and we get a lot from the popular culture. And sometimes it's not accurate. God looks like Santa Claus. He's not Santa Claus. God looks like you know, the sort of uh, you know, bumbling, fumbling uh, kind of uh, crazy uncle that you know, lives upstairs, that kind of stumbles down and says, Hey, what's going on down here? And then walks back up. You know, that's the image of God that we have. But the fact is, is that regardless of uh, you know, whether we know it or not, the, the culture is influencing our personal theology when it should be God's word. And one other, one other note on this when developing our, our, this idea of personal theology, you might think, as I have in the past, that um, just because I'm here in church, my theology is good. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's a difference, and um, listen very carefully here because I, I don't want anyone to think that, there's, that I'm preaching heresy. But there's a, there's a difference between your stated theology and your functional theology. And so what I mean by that is this. And this is something that's only recently, about in the last few years, that I've really got a handle on. And you know, thankfully through the writings of some of the seminary guys that um, Pastor Zabolsky, Dad Zee, has recommended guys like Tim Keller and all that. Uh, there's a difference between what you say you believe and then how you live, your functional theology. And that makes all the difference in the world. There are a lot of people who say, I believe X, Y, and Z about Christianity or about God or about whatever, but the, but the fact of the matter is, is that how they live their lives, who, what they are pursuing for satisfaction and fulfillment, uh, where they go when they're hurting, defines their functional theology. So make a note of this, that just because you say mentally as a concept, I believe X, Y, and Z. Look at how you live your life. We're going to go into that a little bit more later, but there's a difference, so just kind of note that. All right, so personal theology is important. Uh, we've, we've sort of talked about that. And our, the second point that I want to make is this. Our personal theology impacts how we interact not only with God, but also the world that we have around us. Uh, I was reading just this weekend, Dad Z and I were talking about the great theologian Jonathan Edwards. An amazing guy started Princeton when he was 13 years old. Very impressive. Um, but one of the great contributions of Jonathan Edwards was he saw that his theology or the theology of, that we have for, for our lives impacts everything and that God, uh, God's truth permeates all aspects of our lives. And it's really incredible. But our, our personal theology impacts not only how we interact with God, but also his world. And, and starting with, and here's a couple of ways that it impacts us. So the first thing is that it impacts our view of ourselves. You know, if you took if you took every self-help book that talked about looking inside yourself for truth and you stacked it over here, and then you took all the modern self-help books that said, you know, you don't know what you're doing and, you know, it's the truth is not inside you and you're broken at your core, and you stacked them over here, this would be a mountain and this would be maybe two books, you know, or three books. But the fact of the matter is is that it, one of the, the deceptions that we have in our modern culture that I don't think was was nearly as prominent in past generations as this. What you need to direct your life is in here. You just gotta find it. Folks, that is wrong. That is absolutely incorrect. And I've been guilty of it too. You know, and we all say things like to... to uh, it, it, one of the ways it comes up is, you know, someone gets ready to graduate from high school or college and they say, man, what, what do I need to do? What, what, where do I go? And they, well, just follow your heart. Well, I, I like to play video games. I think I'm going to play video <laughs> games for my career. That's where my heart is. Or I like to, you know, I don't know, uh, eat chips and salsa. I mean, if I, if I had followed my heart, I'd eat chips and salsa and watch football and play Xbox occasionally. And, you know, so I'm looking for that career niche. Uh, I haven't found it. But, um, but the point is, is that, you know, the, the fact is, is that the, the truth that you're looking for, the direction for your life isn't going to be found internally. And I think that's a deception that's really we've latched onto in our modern world that wasn't in past generations. You know, past generations, they said, you know, wise people find out the rules of the universe, how to best live, and then they bend their will to that, those rules. Today's world, what we try to do is we look around and we look at what our preferences are, what our ideals are. We try to bend the world to fit us. And that's a, that's a very modern concept that is almost ubiquitous. We all It seems like it permeates every aspect of, of everything today. This idea that that we have the answers internally, let's look inside ourselves. So, you know, one of the ways that we're deceived is by believing pop culture and pop psychology, tidbits like that. Whereas the Bible, what does the Bible say about our hearts? Are we basically good? Do we know what we're doing? No, we're absolutely broken. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't have the ability to know even what our real passions are. And if you've ever seen that, you know, you have someone who dedicates 10 or 15 years to rising to the top of some career mountain, and they get to the top, and they say, I don't like this anymore. This isn't fulfilling. This isn't what I thought it was. So they go on to something else, and you can see that in a lot of areas. But the fact of the matter is is that we don't know ourselves enough to even make those sort of decisions. So our, our theology influences and impacts our view of ourselves, and secondly, our theology impacts our view of reality and how we should respond to events. So, here's the thing. If, any, anyone in business or sales or anything like that here? So, if you're in business, you know there's a difference between an entrepreneur who starts a company and through, you know, bootstrapping techniques and hard work and grit and sweat, makes that thing work. There's a difference in his perspective and an academic guy who is an economist, and maybe a very intelligent guy, but doesn't have any practical knowledge. There's a big difference in that. Well, the difference mainly is this, is that an academic guy is a little bit protected and even, I'm not knocking academics, you know, I did academics for five years, there's a lot of wonderful people in academics, but the academic guy can hold a lot of theories that don't have to be battle-tested. And so they can have visions of reality that, are visions of ideas that don't conform to the laws of the universe and the reality, because they don't have to go out and take the heat for it. Whereas an entrepreneur, a guy who starts something up from the ground level, he knows what works and what doesn't work because he, has, he or she has to be out there and what they're doing and their theories have to work in the real world or else, you know, they're done. So with regards to our theology, I would just say this, is that you can have any vision of reality or spirituality or God or morals or ethics or anything that you want. But if your vision, if your theology doesn't match with reality... That's going to cause big, big problems in your life. Let's just take one example. So there is a, a philosophy. If you ask, if you go on the street corner and you say, what do you think about people are basically good or basically evil? The vast majority of people, if they're not completely overwhelmed with cynicism, are going to say, oh, we're basically good. I think there's goodness in everyone. We basically know what we're doing. Unfortunately, that's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? It says we're depraved. We, we don't have direction. We, we don't know enough to know how to direct ourselves. And man is not basically good. Man is basically broken. So you take the theology, the prominent theology of our modern world, and you start applying that to things such as government. Now, the, the founding fathers in America, even though they weren't all evangelical Christians, had a view of man that was very much in line with what biblical teaching was. So when they put together the, uh, you know, the the founding, the legislative branch and the executive branch and judicial branch, there were checks and balances because they knew that man was basically evil and given enough power. What did Abraham Lincoln say? He said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And so if you have a vision of people that man is basically depraved and we're all selfish and we all want to grasp onto the rings of power, then you're going to put checks and balances because no one is good enough to... You know, universally and without end, uh, say no to those the reins of power. If you, however, if you have a vision of man that's basically good, you're going to structure your government differently, right? And what about the judicial system? If if someone goes out and kills someone, you know, and and you have a vision that people are basically good, well, that's not sin. That's just a communication issue. That's just poor parenting. That's just a misunderstanding. If you look at education and you have a vision that man is basically good, it's not that we need to teach our kids discipline. It's not that we need to teach uh, them the right way to live because, you know, everyone's kind of right and everyone's kind of wrong. It's sort of letting the little flowers sprout up and let them grow however they want. And so th- your vision on this one thing, the depravity of man, yes or no, you know, how do you see man? How do you see, uh, you know, people? Do, does it conform to Scripture or does it... Is it influenced by pop psychology, sets the tone for not only your life, but as you can see, as groups of people believe things, it sets the tone for the trajectory of communities and eventually nations. So just that one thing. You know, from a medical, um, from, from a medical perspective, I was thinking about this as I was putting it together. Uh, the the um, disease malaria is a really fascinating disease. If you've ever had an opportunity to study it, it's a parasite that gets in your blood from mosquitoes. Uh, we used to have it in the United States, and I won't go into all the details for why it was eradicated. It's kind of a fascinating story, but malaria even today is a scourge in developing countries. I mean, this is an interesting side note, and I'm not going to go on it too much. I have, this is a point, but I, I, like, I like malaria in the sense that from an intellectual standpoint, it's, it's fascinating to study. And it's influenced uh, wars, it's influenced the rise of nations or the falls of nations. It's been around for eons and eons. They, or records in the Greek history where they think that they were describing malaria in soldiers, for instance. Um, but ma- people didn't know what caused malaria for you know, centuries. It was a scourge of people and, and no one knew what caused it. Matter of fact, the, the translation malaria means bad air, so they knew that there was something about swamps and wetlands and smelly places that there was something not right and you got this febrile disease, but no one really knew why that was the case. And even today, uh, they think between three and four hundred million people worldwide have malaria at any given time. And c- comparing that actually to, to HIV. It's, it's, how, many, how many do you think more people have malaria or HIV? This is my public health background coming up. How many people think more people have HIV? Malaria. Yeah, it's ten times the amount worldwide. Forty million people worldwide have HIV. Around four hundred million people have malaria. So it's, a, it's an incredibly um, powerful disease. It's still ravaging our world. But people thought it had to do with air, and so you let's say you have the the um, the idea that malaria is caused by bad air. Well, what are you going to do? If you go to southern towns nowadays, where we used to have malaria in the in the southeastern United States, and you go to a southern town, you look and see where all the big mansions were that were built in the 17 and 1800s. Look up on the hillsides. That's where they all are. They're not down by the water where we like to live now and do our skiing and our fishing and all that. All the wealthy people built up on the hillsides, so their vision that malaria was caused by the bad air. They wanted to get away from the bad air down by the river and up on the hillsides. That's where everyone built their homes. You can see this in Little Rock where I spent a lot of time or in certain places in Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia. But if you thought that it was caused by bad air, you would take precautions about that, and people did, and they still got malaria and still died. So their vision of reality they were very passionate about, but it was very inaccurate, and they suffered the consequences of it. And it wasn't until the turn of the the early 1900s that a physician from Hopkins that, you know, I thought was fantastic, figured this all out and realized that it was mosquitoes that were transmitting this parasite. And instantly, you started to see big changes in people who got malaria, including in the southeastern United States and in projects like the Panama Canal and other places. So, uh, you know, you can have the point of of that, that is this. Your vision of reality, you can choose whatever vision of reality you want. If you want to say people are basically good or, you know, man is, man is basically okay and I don't believe in a God who would actually, you know, uh, I believe in a loving God so he would never punish people or, or whatever. You can say whatever you want. But if it doesn't conform to reality, there's going to be problems from that. Just like the people who believe that malaria was from bad air and not mosquitoes, uh, there, there are ramifications of that. So absolutely, the idea that our personal theology is important because it influences our vision of God, or excuse me, ourselves, and it influences our view of reality. And one more thing before we go on about this, you know, in looking at our world, I've often sat there and thought to myself, you know you look at some of our leaders, and this isn't to, to knock one group or the other or any particular leader, but you know, you, you say, okay, these, these people at first I thought when I would look at some of the decisions that were made on national levels, uh, I would think to myself, you know, these people are just crazy, or, or they're just uninformed or something. But the longer I've lived and the more I kind of think about this, I don't think that the, a lot of the decisions that are made are because people are lacking in intelligence or lacking in education. It's that they're arguing from premises that are inaccurate. If you believe that God is basic, or that man is basically good, and you believe that there are, there's no right and wrong in the world, you believe in moral relativism, then those two premises. Not only influence your worldview, but it explains a lot of the decision making that we see on that on the national level and on the world stage. So, just kind of keep that in mind. If you are a moral relativist, if you believe that man is basically good, um, you don't even see the data points sometimes that are coming in of the rise of evil or the or problems coming around around the bend. And that's one of the reasons why in Psalm 119, I think this is uh, so brilliant. Um, the verse there it says you know, David or the psalmist is talking to the Lord. He says, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. And I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged." And when I was younger, I used to think that what happens is this, is that you follow the Lord and he drops a wisdom bomb on you, you know, and he, he, te- he you know, gives you more and more wisdom. And maybe he does that. But I think more it's that you saturate your mind with God's word and he begins to use the Holy Spirit to sanctify your mind. And you start seeing things come in and data points coming in that other people don't recognize even though it's right there. And that's how we gain wisdom because our vision of the world starts to conform more and more to the reality that God's put out there. And so you're able to see without being you know, kind of crazy, you know, new agey, you're actually able to see around the bend a bit because where everyone else is missing it, your mind is attuned and your eyes are open because the Lord's granted you this wisdom and you're able to see the evil rising or you're able to see the good things that are coming or whatever simply because the Lord opens your eyes to the truth of the way, way the world works. I found a quote here uh, about the uh, historian Josephus who's the famous jo- uh, Jewish historian. It was um, by a professor at York University and he, he is an archaeologist and historian. And I thought this was really interesting. It ties in real well. And Josephus obviously was Jewish, and he was amazed by God's law as contained in the Old Testament. Obviously not a Christian, but um, very profoundly moved by um, the, uh, what he considered the truth and the accuracy of, of the Old Testament law. And he says this, Josephus, this is the historian saying this about Josephus, Josephus magnanimously wishes all lovers of truth to know that the Constitution established by Moses under which the Judeans live is the finest in the world. It alone offers the happiness that people vainly seek in other constitutions and philosophies because it is in perfect harmony with the laws of nature as old as life itself, philosophically pure and practically effective. So Josephus agreed with this, that the law of our Lord is profoundly in tune with the laws of the universe that he put in, the moral laws that are there, and wise people are invest, it is a good investment for wise people to learn the, the teaching of the word and also to learn the moral uh, laws of the universe that are out there. So not to belabor the point but I thought that was very profound. So our, our theology is important. It influences our view of ourselves. It influence, influences our view of reality. And third here's the third point here. Uh, it impacts how we invest our time. So what do I mean by that? If you believe Uh, Well, if your theology is inaccurate, if you have a view of God that's inadequate or inaccurate, then your spiritual life is not going to be fulfilled. And if your spiritual life isn't fulfilled, then you're going to look other places for that fulfillment. So if you're looking other places for that fulfillment, then basically what you're doing is you're chasing something that will never satisfy you. And what do we call that? Biblically speaking, that's a lust. Okay, so, or an idol. But, uh, you know, what is a lust? Uh, You know, oftentimes we think about, you know, sexual sins or whatever, and we think about lust. But lust is much more all-encompassing. And what a lust is is basically this. A lust uh, is something that promises to fulfill us but never will. And and there are a lot of good things that could be classified as lusts. So things like career, things as good as a marriage, things as good as my kids turning out okay, financial stability, career success, all those things. You know, even... Uh, it, here's something very subtle. Success in a ministry, a good ministry, you know, there are there are wonderful um, people who pour their lives into ministry, but their their uh, their sense of fulfillment isn't from the Lord. Their sense of fulfillment is from the success of whatever it is they're working on, and that's a very very subtle thing that people a trap that people fall into. And so the point of this is is this: if your vision of God is inadequate, this idol you've created in your mind is not going to fulfill you, and so if you are looking for other things to fulfill you, um, you're going to invest your time in that, and at the end of the days that God gives you, you're going to look at that and, and say, well, this thing didn't fulfill me, or this thing didn't satisfy me, and I'm reminded of the the, um, the quote from J.I. Packer that says this, I might be skipping ahead here, but Uh, J.I. Packer said this in Knowing God. He said, To follow the imagination of one's heart in the realm of theology is the way to remain ignorant of God. And to become an idol worshiper. The idol in this case being a false mental image of God made by one's own speculation and imagination. So it's absolutely important that to properly invest our lives and properly invest our time that we have an adequate theology, an accurate theology of the Lord. And the last point of this just goes right along with this. Obviously, Goes without saying, but I'm going to say it overtly because you know um, we might miss it, and it's that an accurate theology impacts our ultimate view of who God is, and that's almost goes without saying. Uh, but the reason that that's important is just this: is that if your view of God is small, if your God is contained, if your God is the vending machine God, or what I like to call flannel board Jesus. Anyone remember flannel boards? Man, I, you know, I I pity the the iPod and the iPad and the iPhone generation that didn't get to know flannel boards. Flannel boards are awesome. Um, But flannel board Jesus is, I call it this because it's a vision of God that God is controlled by what you do. And so if you have the formula worked out, you go and you type in the vending machine code and flannel board Jesus goes and gets you what you want. Alright? Is that an accurate view of God? Absolutely not. So if your vision of God is small and this idol of your mind that you've created as packer says fails you because you've punched in the code and instead of getting the oreos that you wanted you get a lump of coal or you get you know something that you don't think you deserve and your vision of god is that when i punch in the code he does something for me and he doesn't do something for me then what happens you know he hasn't failed you because that's not how god works but often we will attribute we will attach our idol of our mind onto who the real God is, and we'll think that the real God failed us, and we'll begin to curse God in our hearts. How dare you do this? How could you let me down? I've served you, I've done all these things for you, and here you are, you failed me. All I wanted was a happy marriage, and my spouse has left me. You know, it's, it's a tragedy because when we look at that, we see uh, our own selfishness portrayed out, out, uh, out overtly. But flannel board Jesus is not going to come save you because he doesn't exist. Only the real God and who God is is going to save you. And it's absolutely imperative that you have an accurate vision of who God is so that you don't fall into some of these traps where you waste years of your life in bitterness and anger towards the God that failed you when actually it was nothing more than an idol of your mind. Interestingly, if you look at the theology of uh, the book of Exodus, you know the, the story of when Moses goes up, to get the Ten Commandments, and Aaron is there with the the children of Israel, and they rebel, and they say, you know, build us a a god for us to worship. You remember that story? I thought for years that the god that he built was Baal or one of the the pagan gods. You realize that in the text, that's not what it says. What it says in the text is this: is that the god that he builds is the god that took them out of Israel. The sin of that moment was not that they turned from the real god and started serving Baal or some pagan god. The sin was that they were worshiping an inadequate and inaccurate view of the real God. And that's, that's a powerful thing when you think about it. So, all right, so it's, we, we've covered a, a lot of ground here. We've, we've uh, emphasized why it's so important that we have an accurate theology. And um, the question now is, of course, you know, how do we get there? Um, how do we get an accurate theology? And what do we do? at this point if we are concerned about knowing if our our theology is accurate alright so um, so the, you know the, the Lord has been very good to us because he's given us his word which is ultimately the, the absolute authority for who God says he is but how do you use this word practically speaking to get your theology accurate well I came across a book years ago called Celebration and Discipline by Richard Foster I think it's very, it's easy to read. He's a Quaker, so it's a little bit different um, perspective. But I, he does a, a lot of good, I think, in really fleshing out a lot of the practical um, disciplines that we should be incorporating into our daily lives in order to, for the Holy Spirit to sanctify our minds and sanctify our hearts. So Foster goes through and talks about things like meditation and prayer and fasting and Bible study and all those classic spiritual disciplines. And I looked at my, you know, I read this book years ago, and in, in the last year or so, I've been reading it or, or thinking about it some more. And when you think about this, think about something that you're really good at, you know, whether it's your job or maybe, um, you know, you're really good at with your kids or you're really good at some some uh, form of service. And you think about all the hours that it took you to develop some skill. You know, you look at a professional athlete and you watch them compete, and you think, man. And you realize when you talk to these individuals that are really good in one area, you think about the. Hundreds and the thousands of hours. So you look, Someone who's a great orthodontist, you know. I mean, how long, you don't, I mean, correct me, maybe you're the guy, Mark, that graduated from college and just started tinkering on people's teeth. But I'm assuming that you had to be trained. Yeah, and so you think about the thousands of hours it takes to master a craft of some, or some skill set. Now we look at our spiritual lives. Our spiritual lives are no different. How long does it take to become a godly person, a person of, of character, and we, we have this kind of, another thing in our modern cultures, we have this sort of new agey feeling that, you know, we're going to wake up one day and just, you know, the Lord's going to just make us holy. You know, we're just going to wake up one day, and even though we're not doing our Bible study, and even though we're not disciplining ourselves, that the Lord is just going to all of a sudden just say, you know, well, now you're a leader of the faith. Well, he, he absolutely calls us, and absolutely The work of our hearts is 100% dependent on him, but he uses the means of the spiritual disciplines to put his word deep in our lives and to influence our minds. And if you take all the hours that we spend in front of the TV and listening to the radio and on the internet, and then you take the amount of time that we put, uh, where we're putting the word of the Lord in our minds and in our hearts, and you compare the two, you can see why a lot of us have problems with our theology because it's a huge influence here. It's a small influence there. So... The way that you practically start building out and learning who God is in a practical way is through the spiritual disciplines. And if you have specific questions about that, you ought to get Richard Foster's book. I think it's a great, a great read and not, not a very difficult one. And along those same lines, how do you know if your theology is accurate? How do you know? And I think one of the best ways that I've, one of the best techniques that I've used in my own life for, for testing my heart and testing my own theology is by asking very um, pointed questions of myself. Things like this. How do I respond to failure? It's, it's normal to be disappointed if you have some goal or something you're trying to achieve or some hope that gets crushed. If you're disappointed by that, that's normal. all right. But if you're overwhelmed with grief, if you're upended, if you can't face life, if you can't get out of bed in the morning, if nothing, if it, you know, the, the biblical analogy to this is, Ahab, who wants to buy the vineyard, and he is, his dream of buying Naboth's vineyard is crushed, and so he lies on his bed and is moaning and groaning. And if that is you when you sense failure, or you, you have failure, or you have some hope or dream that's crushed, then that is a tip-off, that maybe your theology of God is off. Maybe your view of God is too small. And maybe instead of serving the Lord, you're actually using him, like a vehicle to get what you ultimately are looking to fulfill you, which is an achievement or success in some area. And number two, when you're disappointed or you're sad or you're tired, where do you go? Who, what, who or what do you turn to when you're overwhelmed with grief, when you're fatigued, when you're exhausted, when you're, when you're challenged? You know, some people it's a substance. And, and I, I used to be so... Um, I don 't know judgmental I work in an emergency I've worked in emergency departments all over the world I've worked in probably twenty in the United States i've worked in some really for lack of a better term and not in a profane way, but some real hell holes in places where the people who come in are rough, rough people, um, you know IV drug users, murderers, rapists, you know drunks, angry, violent people and I used to have a level of real judgment uh, and harshness. Looking at those folks, but but the fact of the matter is, is that those folks are we're, we're just like them, really. We're just like them. We're a cleaned up version, maybe, but we're just as broken as they are. It's just what they've sought to soothe themselves when they get tired and lonely and frustrated and all that is something different than us. They started out with substances, most of them, heroin and cocaine and and other substances, and it got a foothold in their life and it took them down this path of destruction. And maybe what we've used is not as powerful of an addiction, or, or at least not an overtly as powerful. Maybe we use food, or maybe we use you know, zoning out in front of the TV, or maybe we use other things. But the fact of the matter is, is that they're just assuaging their own hurt and their own brokenness with things that are more overtly um, obvious. And, and we're doing the same thing oftentimes. And if, if you, when you get tired and you get frustrated and you get uh, beaten down... If you find yourself reflexively going to something, it could be that your theology needs to be examined, because that's not just a bad habit. It could be that that is a functional savior in your life, and that's a practical, that's an idol that you have there, because your theology of God is not big enough to to uh, to handle it when you um, when you're beaten down, and you're exhausted. Another thing that I use is what makes me lose control. If someone uh, you know, there, there's something, there are a lot of things that annoy us, but what makes me absolutely flip out and totally lose control, oftentimes, you know, Keller says in his sermons and in his books, he says, anger is something, wrath is something that is, some, is something that can be used as a tool. And the way it's used as a tool in our own lives for perspective's sake is this, behind our anger and behind our wrath oftentimes lie our idols. And what we find is that oftentimes the thing that make us makes us most angry, most wrathful, and vengeful, and just completely overwhelms us with frustration, is that someone has offended us, and it's an attack on our individual selves, it's an attack on our reputation, it's attack on our in, it's an inconvenience towards we're moving towards something we want to obtain, and someone obstructs that. So analyze, ask yourself this question: What is something that, when it happens to me or something that I experience, I just absolutely it just grinds against me to the point where I, I, it's hard for me to sleep. I, it's hard for me to forgive someone when they do this to me. And behind that very well could be something in your life that is, uh, is more important than it should be. And lastly, this is something that um, recently I've been using to, to, great, uh, to great success or, or at least um, to really unmask some things in my own life, is this. If a genie popped out of a bottle and said, I'll grant you one wish and is there anything in your life right now that if if this genie came to you uh, and asked you that he, that he or she could change something in your life to give you fulfillment that if you thought if I could just eliminate this one circumstance or change this one person or change this one thing that everything in my life would be better everything would be where it should be everything would be fulfilled everything would be um, perfect If you could change this one thing or maybe one or two things or whatever then if you have a circumstance in your life that you think to yourself if I could just obtain that, if I could just change that, if I could just get rid of that that everything would be right you might be putting a finger on something that is actually more powerful than it should be because what by definition if you do that what you're what you're really saying is is that I can't live a powerful life I can't live a life of fulfillment I can't be uh... a hundred percent what the I need something other than just the Lord to bring me to a place where I'm content and fulfilled. And that thing, whatever it is, could be a powerful idol in your life, could be uh, something that is obstructing a proper theology in you and the Lord. So uh, just ask yourself those questions. How do I respond to failure? Where do I go when I'm tired or discouraged? What makes me lose control? And is there something in my life that I absolutely would change if I had the opportunity? And that Change would bring about ultimate fulfillment in my life? I think those questions can be very illuminating. Okay, lastly, I promised I would tie this into Christmas. (laughs) And you guys have been very patient um, with the first sermon I've ever given. Um, So what does this mean? How do we tie this all to Christmas? It's very easy. It's very easy. The ultimate question you need to ask yourself and the ultimate way we tie all this together is this. Our theology is based on one question. What do we do with the baby Jesus? Really. Is the baby Jesus just some, someone who we, we cart out of the back closet and we, it reminds us of the Christmases ago, long ago, where we were kids and opening all the presents? Is it a sentimental thing? Is it a distant concept? Does the baby Jesus just recommend... or? Um, is the baby Jesus just something that brings to mind great moral concepts or character lessons or whatever? Or is the baby Jesus what the Bible says, the gospel says, which is this. The baby Jesus is God incarnate who comes into a broken world and powerfully interacts with us and gives us freedom over all the things in our life that, uh, that have, or continue to, to beat us up and, and destroy us. And the baby Jesus, how we answer that question who is the baby Jesus, ultimately gives us the accurate theology that we need not only to worship the Lord and to glorify him, which is our chief aim, but also to give us an accurate view of ourselves, the relationships that we have, the, the view of the world around us, to, to, uh, to, in, in the end, to not cause problems, but to, but to, cause, uh, but to bring about great, uh, you know, profound uh, changes in our lives where we can serve others and glorify God through it. So that's, that's how we tie it all into Christmas. Our theology, we've seen, is very important. Uh, th- inaccurate theology, yeah, even if we are believers, even if we are well meaning, can cause great problems. Our personal theology impacts so much. Matter of fact, it impacts everything about us. And ultimately, it boils down to a single question Who is the baby Jesus? And what, why did he come? And what does it mean to me? So that's how we tie it all in. And so with that, I'm going to close in prayer and thank you guys once again, and, uh, and we'll, we'll go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. And we thank you that in this Christmas time here that we have together, that uh, you didn't come to make us, you know, simply cleaner versions of who we already are. You came to change us and to make us new creatures because we're broken people. We live in a broken world, and we're broken but you've come to save us. and We're not moralistic, therapeutic deists. We believe in a God that is there, that is loving, that is powerful, that came to us in the form of your son Jesus, that walked among us, and that lived out this life and identified with us and now mediates for us in your throne room. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, help us not to be unduly influenced by the culture that we're in by the distractions that are around us help use help us to use the spiritual disciplines that you've given us and the the work of the holy spirit to sanctify our hearts so that we can see you better and in the end glorify you more thanks lord for this congregation thanks for the leadership of this church and thank you for this holiday season that brings it all together we love you in your name we pray amen we're going to close